This podcast is brought to you by the Administrative Committee of the Presbyterian Church in America, promoting the unity, purity, and progress of the church. Learn more about the Administrative Committee and support its work by visiting PCAAC.org. Welcome to Gifts and Graces. All Christians have communion in each other's gifts and graces, says the Westminster Confession. So on this podcast, we help you and your church benefit from the gifts and graces of other parts of Christ's body. Each episode, we bring you a seminar, sermon, or discussion from church leaders across the country and around the world designed to promote the unity, purity, and progress of the church. This is Gifts and Graces. On this episode of Gifts and Graces, we get to hear from Andy Andrews as he provides basic principles for churches to consider when it comes to employment law, with specific attention on the Speak Out Act. Andy is Senior Counsel for Michael Best, based in Durham, North Carolina. This episode was originally recorded as a seminar delivered at the 2023 General Assembly. Let's listen as Andy provides a practical overview of church employment law. My name is Andy Jones, and I am a teaching elder in Eastern Carolina Presbytery, and we're going to be doing this as a Q&A discussion uh, this afternoon, and, um, and you're going to have the opportunity to be part of the Q, too, and Andy will be the A of that Q&A. Um, but we met uh, over the past year uh, through our presbytery uh, uh, committee that we were involved with, and uh, Andy's expertise in the area of employment law came to light through that, and uh, I was just excited to see him get this opportunity to share some of the work that he's been doing uh, with churches and nonprofits that I think will be beneficial to you all. So I'm going to ask some questions, and you'll have time to ask questions, so just make sure you're dem- demonstrably uh, <laughs> visible. Uh, for me to see or audibly uh, if you have a question. But let's get started. Uh, Maybe be, first of all, just uh, helpful for you to tell us a little bit about your legal background and any disclaimers or legal caveats you need to give. Um, Thank you all for for having me today. Um, It's really a pleasure to be here. You're probably here and not going to some of the other presentations just because my guess is your your church may be going through an employment issue or may go go through one in the future. And uh, we're going to be talking about some pretty challenging things, I think, when we talk about employment law, hiring and firing, and how do we care for the vulnerable in, in the church. Um, and so uh, this is, you know, as you know, is a recorded session. And so um, if questions are going to be really helpful, um, and if you, I'd love for this to be practical and useful. And so if you have questions, things that you'd like to talk about, please uh, let us know. I think the room's sufficiently small to do that. But when you're asking questions, please um, let's not be specific about situations going on at your church. I can't, you know, give you legal advice. It wouldn't be privileged um, as we're talking. So let's maybe talk in hypotheticals. Um, but I'd really hope, hope that this would be practical and something that would be useful to you as you, um, as you lead your churches uh, through probably some challenging situations. Um, so yeah, so that's the only, the only disclaimer that I'd have. And um, just in terms of background, I represent a number of churches and um, I get to help with governance issues, employment issues, um, all sorts of just sort of general, um, sort of outside general counsel kind of things uh, for small and mid-sized churches and a few uh, 
fairly large churches. Um, but yeah, it's really, really grateful to spend the afternoon with y'all for a bit. Uh, so another disclaimer too, though, I think that's helpful is when we talk about the church in this uh, workshop today, we're primarily going to be referring to the church as a legal entity and not the spiritual entity that we primarily speak of. We don't speak of these things as totally separated, right? Uh, but maybe, Andy, if you can help us to give a category for how to think of the church as a legal entity. Sure. Um, so the, the big church being the spiritual entity, the PCA, the group that we all work with, um, and I guess the church writ large, uh, is different than the church as the discrete legal entity that exists under state law and may or may not have an exempt, uh, have filed for an exemption from the IRS. Um, so the entity that takes in the donations that, you know, whose EIN is on the W-2 uh, of the employees who work there, that entity exists under state law as an employer um, and has certain obligations under state law and under federal law as, as an entity that employs people, which, you know, hopefully lines up pretty well with the church's obligations under the BCO, or the Book of Church Order. Um, but sometimes those things can conflict, and we want those things to, to line up as well as possible. So we're going to, we're just going to go through, I think, what's going to be a list of issues that I think are going to be of interest to you all. And as we go through them, you feel free, uh, as you have questions, once again, to uh, feel free to ask them. But I want to start off with questions around hiring well, um, because I think most of the time the things that make the news are not about hiring controversies. <laughs> They're about firing controversies, termination of employment. Uh, but, uh, Andy, I'm guessing uh, from my conversations with you, a lot of those issues could be avoided if the hiring process were probably done better. So maybe give us some, uh, some of the things that you wish churches would do, consider doing, when it comes to hiring. I think the biggest things that a church can do um, on the hiring process is to have an organizational chart to know who reports to who, so the management function, and then the governance function. I think the biggest key question is who decides what. And most of the conflicts that I get to see, and generally people don't, talk with me about an employment situation when things are going well. It's usually when things are going poorly um, that I get involved and learn what some of the details. I think, and I, that gives me a unique perspective, kind of the, the Monday morning quarterback perspective, where I can look back at that conflict from this church and a different conflict from another church and start to piece together the puzzle and see a lot of this could be avoided if we were able to set expectations clearly on the front end know who's reporting to who. So are, is the new hire reporting to the associate pastor or the senior pastor? And really what the role is. What is an employee's role? And what makes this really hard in churches as distinct from private employers is the, the overlap between the friendships and the personal relationships and the employment relationship. When you just go to a job and it's just a job, that has its downsides to it, but at least it's clear that the employee's role is to just primarily work. And if they have friends at work, that's great, but it's not essential. But in, in a healthy church, the friendships and the employment relationships are gonna be so interlocked and so overlapping that they're gonna be really hard to separate, which makes any sort of conflict much more challenging in, in the context of a church. Uh, so uh, 
people get hired at churches, and the, the issue you brought up is there's relational overlap that creates just some more variables in any situation. But another, I think, reality that you get hit with is that the church, the church is not a static entity. It's just going to stay this particular way for all time. It, every church is dynamic, right? And some are fast-growing, and, and they're having to do a lot of hiring and trying to figure out what the next need is and, and so forth. And so a, a church that you're hired into in one day could look a lot different in 18 months even. And how, yeah, how does the dynamism of the church uh, affect kind of the whole org chart uh, issue? Yep, that's a really good question. Um, and unfor- it's hard because it can, it can change. Is a church growing? Are they combining? Or are people moving from one church in town to another church in town? Those dynamics can be a lot different. Um, I think as the church grows and, and brings on new people, a lot of times the existing leadership structure will identify a need that needs to be filled, but then they won't figure out precisely how this new person is going to fill that need. And then as the need continues to grow, so you bring on a, a full-time, you know, you separate your children's ministry and your youth ministry. So now you have a children's minister and a youth minister, and then you continue growing. Now you need an associate youth minister and an associate children's minister. Well, is that new person going to report to the one who just had the job split, or is it going to be an entirely new and different role? It's a question that needs to be asked, and a lot of times in a growing church, it doesn't necessarily get asked in specifically and expressly, and then that leads to unmet expectations or unrealistic expectations of the new hire who's now coming into a bigger organization. If I was going to give one takeaway on that point, small and mid-sized churches really, from my perspective, they have kind of two governance models. One is the consensus model, where basically everyone who's in leadership more or less agrees, and the other one is the sort of core pastor-driven model, where there's one person who's in charge that everyone defers to. And so that person's view of how we're growing and how we're changing is really going to be the view or the position that gets taken. And so as churches grow and grow, the consensus model where everybody agrees on everything or the one guy makes all the decisions in the pastor-driven model, those models only work decently well for so long after those, when a church gets to be of a sufficient size, those models aren't going to work very well, and they start, that's where a lot of breakdown happens in growing churches, is when you either have consensus model, and you don't get consensus because there's just too many people, and there's too much going on, or you have pastor-driven model, and, you know, that one person can't bear all the weight of the decision-making. Yes, sir. I think you're right. And also with the job description, an org chart. So just, you know, a little symbol for every person in the organization, who they report to, and then just little, if I was going to make one change to an employee manual, out of all the employee manuals that I see at different churches, different sizes, different denominations, I would, and every time I get one and they want me to update it, I'll put an org chart in there where everyone's reporting structure is clear. And then I'll emphasize to the best of my ability, the need to update this as people come on board, and it helps not only with the, the management functions and the government governance functions, so decision-making and reporting structures, it also helps as churches grow. Um, there are a number of different employment laws at the federal and the state level that 
kind of have de minimis exceptions to them. So below a certain size, certain employment laws don't apply to an entity, a, the legal entity. Um, so when you get to be five employees, certain rules start applying. When you get to be 15 is kind of the big cutoff where lots of discrimination provisions start applying, the Americans with Disabilities Act, Fair Labor Standards Act. Um, a lot of these things come into place when you hit certain size thresholds. Um, and a lot of times that just happens, you know, and no one really knows it. And then if you don't have an org chart, and you don't, you don't really know who's going to make these decisions. Um, and then to be fair, you know, most churches don't file a Form 990, you know, the annual nonprofit information return, because they don't, they don't have to. Um, so, and churches also don't get audited very often. But when it does happen, and all these sort of issues, you know, get out in the open, and people start looking at them carefully, it can be really, really troubling, because then not only do you have the, the issue that you knew about, which sort of gave rise to the situation at hand, but then you start finding all these other problems um, and find yourself out of compliance with various laws you didn't even know applied uh, to your organization. Um, so, obviously, I mentioned earlier that a lot of times employment issues at churches become an issue because there's probably a, a breakdown in relationship or perhaps even the termination of the employment, employment relationship. Uh, so let's talk about terminating a church employee. So for whatever reason, it's been decided by whoever is in that decide, uh, deciding position, right, that this person is no longer going to uh, be an employee of the church, and that needs to happen. Um, what, uh, yeah, what are the things the church should be thinking about in terms of how to carry out the termination so that it's done well and right and considered, uh, considerate of the employee's rights and privileges? and Yeah. yeah. Andy, I think, I think that's one of the hardest things to do is an involuntary termination in a church because if, I mean, if you, please don't raise your hand, but I'm sure you've seen this happen before in your churches and, you know, when the person's not on stage next week, if they're part of the worship team, if they aren't in the pulpit, it's going to frustrate the congregation. Um, people are going to square off on sides and it's, it's really challenging. Um, that part is sort of outside of my bailiwick. Um, that's, that's, hard to, that's a hard thing to do, and there's not a great answer in every situation. What, what I do find are some, some places where churches can be thoughtful and sort of get ahead of some of those problems. Um, it's really shocking to a lot of folks because most churches don't terminate involuntarily very often, and when they do, um, or when someone leaves, churches find out that they don't have unemployment insurance. Um, so because of this, there's this whole sort of rubric, and we can get into this a little bit more there's this whole concept called the ecclesiastical abstention doctrine, which is just a big fancy word to basically say it's that, that wall of separation between church and state, you know, historically that you've heard about. It kind of came from this, this um, letter to the Danbury Baptists, you know, this sort of historical, if you're, if you're a history buff, this maybe might be <laughs> making sense. But um, the idea is not so much that we protect the state from the church, it's that we protect the church from state interference. And so... You know, if you sit in your high school history class and you think of all that, that's one thing. But when you translate that into practical terms today, what does that ecclesiastical abstention doctrine mean? It comes up in situations like, do we have to file our Form 990 as a nonprofit? Do we get, do people take, make tax deductible donations? Do we have to file a 990 like all of the nonprofits do? Do we have to pay our ministers 
minimum wage? What if we have a person in seminary who wants to work part-time at the church? Do they have to make minimum wage? Do they get overtime? Um, a lot of these federal and state laws, in certain circumstances, because of this abstention doctrine, which is also called the, the ministerial exception, not the housing allowance, but the constitutional ministerial exception, a lot of times churches don't have to follow these otherwise applicable employment laws. And so you can end up with a situation where some people, if you think about your employee roster, the person behind the pulpit and the person leading worship and maybe a few other people, you don't have to follow most and many employment laws with respect to those people. But then the, the groundskeeper, um, the, you know, the church sexton, the um, janitorial services, um, you do have to follow employment laws with those folks. And there's a lot of folks that can live in the gray area in the middle. So you end up having to make rules that apply to an organization um, differently with, with different people. Um, yes, sir? Uh, the question was about um, talking about schools on, on this same topic that we're talking about, uh, how schools and churches relate to each other. That's a really good question, and the U.S. Supreme Court took up that question in, in 2012 and then again in 2020. Um, there's a, the Hosanna Tabor case, um, I think it was a Lutheran school, is the 2012 case, and then um, Morrissey Barreau uh, was the 2020 case, and they were both actually about teachers. Um, which is why they're relevant. They're really sort of fascinating reads if you want to nerd out uh, for a couple hours. Um, but what's going on there is the question is how far does this ministerial exception apply? We know if you're standing behind the, in the pulpit, the ministerial exception applies, which means, you know, when you hire a Presbyterian minister, you want the minister to be a Presbyterian, right? Um, you don't want to have to hire a Baptist uh, to work at a PCA church. Um, you are intentionally religiously discriminating in that case. So you put your job posting up, we want a man to be a preacher in a PCA church, and we want him to be a Presbyterian. And that's it. We are discriminating on the basis of sex and on religion, and that is flatly contrary to Title VII of the 64 Civil Rights Act. But it's okay. And the reason it's okay, and the Baptists don't want to hire a Presbyterian, um, you know, and all the other religions, they want to hire someone of their faith. And the reason is this ministerial exception works. Now the question is, in those two cases, how far does that go? Does it apply to teachers as well um, who teach in a religious school? Does it apply to the administrative staff who work the front desk? Is that a religious job? And the way the Supreme Court came out, and they did the case in 2012, then they did it again in 2020 because they had something else to say and also the makeup of the court changed a bit. But basically, the way it came out is it, it has to do with whether the the employee performs an important ministerial function. So the more that the employee's job has to do with the core mission of the church or the religious school, the more likely it is that the ministerial exception will apply. So in the facts of these two cases, they were, there were actually a couple consolidated cases, but there was a teacher who taught sort of, quote, secular subjects in a religious school for most of the day. There were several teachers involved, but the way the cases were decided. Um, and that teacher taught a religion course just one, day, one period out of, I think, a six-period day. So in terms of time, the teacher was only really teaching religion for, you know, 15% of the, of the teaching day, which was even less than 15% of the full day. Um, and then they taught religion, and there were a lot of facts in the case, somewhat like a secular teacher would teach religion in a, like a history course or a social studies course. 
but then they taught the religious function for a very small portion of the day. And so when you read through the case, you get down, the takeaway is, this person was only teaching like core religious message for 15 or 20 minutes a day. And the U.S. Supreme Court said, well, that's part of the church's core mission of advancing religion. So this teacher is therefore protected um, under the ministerial exception. And what happened is that teacher was suing under, I think, age discrimination was the reason that the teacher sued because the teacher was let go and had their contract not renewed and was replaced by a younger teacher. And so the teacher one said, well, I didn't think that was fair. The teacher wanted to get her job back and not be replaced by a, a younger teacher. So they used age discrimination as the vehicle, and the Supreme Court said that doesn't work. Um, because, and it's not because the court or the law blesses the discrimination and says it's okay. It's because the law doesn't get to make the judgment about how the church advances the church's religious mission. It's that wall of separation. It's basically the state has to stay out of these core decision-making functions about how a church preaches the message. And so then the question is, who, who's doing the preaching? And in this case, even if you only teach or preach or are part of the mission of the church for a pretty limited number of minutes a week, um, if it's part of that core message, it, it still holds. Does that help answer your question some or address it? It may. It's, uh, the, oh, yeah, the question is, um, uh, if a person wanted to come into an open position that was gen like basically not a religious position, would they have standing to pursue a discrimination-type a discrimination type claim? And it's very, very fact-specific, which is the hard part. We don't, this Supreme Court case doesn't give us any great, like, real easy-to-apply rules. It's very, very fact-specific. But... Um, if the position does not advance, here's, here's, the general rule is all the employment laws apply, unless there's an exception. So unless the person fits within the exception to carve them out of the generally applicable rules, well, then they stay in the generally applicable rules, and all of the discrimination protections would normally apply. So the more the job is not part of the church's core mission, um, you know, the stronger case the person might have. Yes, sir? Yes. Uh, the question is, uh, do we know, do I know of any cases where someone who's in a non, who's in a primarily ministerial function, not not a minister's function, but a primarily administrative function, um, has brought a discrimination case and been successful? Yes, um, and it varies by state, because if we don't have the exception applying, then what we have is the normal rubric of federal and state law, and those are successful fairly often, just like a private employer if the person doesn't have any ministerial function, then it's just like working at a private employer. Yes, sir?
Yeah. You have some guidance, but what other guidance would you give for a church who is just starting from scratch to try to get organizational structure and to make sure we put scaffolding in place to, to grow properly? Yeah. I'm asking for the simplified Where do I go for resources? Yeah, good qu really good question. Um, so the question is, if you're putting together an employee manual, um, sort of how do you get started? How do you get off go for a, a church that's really starting the, the question, addressing the issue sort of from scratch? Um, I would start with a, do you have kind of a, a sister church or a church that you were maybe, if you, I'm answering the hypothetical kind of generally, if you have a sister church or a, a partner church or someone you're close with or maybe someone who planted you or maybe if you were involved in a planting network, someone who's similar to you in terms of size and employment roles, I would see if they'd let you start with theirs as a, as a structure. Um, there are some churches who've done a really good job. I would caution against taking someone else's employee manual and changing the names um, because you really, and it, it can really mostly be an exercise of the sort of head pastor and maybe who runs through the, the form um, updates it as desired, takes it to the elders, and then you really need to have maybe like a half-day Saturday kind of meeting to really go through the whole thing and figure out, does this fit what we want? I would also have, I'd suggest having a, a lawyer look at it, or, uh, and the reason is, um, like a lot of, the, I've, when I looked at recently, it said, you know, we're an equal opportunity employ employer. And I thought, no, you're not, because you're, you want to hire Presbyterian men to be your ministers. Like you, um, you're actually not an equal opportunity employer, and you definitely don't want to be. Um, but what they did is they they pulled stuff, you know, from different places and kind of patched it together. So the it's really good to start with the Frankenstein model or the Frankenstein's monster kind of model. Um, but then really going through it from start to finish with your leadership and decision maker, just to make sure that this actually says what we want it to say. And the other point I would say about employee manuals. Most of the ones you're going to find are primarily legal documents, which, unfortunately, m most employee manuals are really about protecting downs against downside risk. So it's basically what do the lawyers want to have said when something goes wrong, um, which isn't great. And they're not helpful to read. And when you hand it to an employee, like, they're all excited to start their new job, and then and they kind of scan through it, and they don't really read it. So even for that function, it's really not that useful. Um, I think it helps to really think about, like, when you're onboarding someone, what do you want to put in front of them? Now, of course, there's going to be kind of some legalese that you put on the back. There's stuff you got to cover. Um, you know, and, but really think about the employee manual as kind of an onboarding. It's not, not all sticks, maybe some carrots. Like, how are we going to run your first 90 days? is I think maybe the best question to ask. Like when some, we put this in front of someone in someone's hands the day they get hired, how are we gonna map out their first 90 days? How are they going to contribute to the mission of the church? And how does their job fit within our church's mission and our current organizational structure? And I, I think approaching those two questions is, is super helpful. And I've seen clients who approach it that way and have like a very inviting kind of employee handbook that tells people how to do things, and who do you call about IT problems? Who do you, you know, your first week, who are you gonna go to lunch with? Like, how do you get integrated? What are your first few projects gonna be? Those tend to go a lot better 
um, then just and then maybe kind of a legal addendum of the things that you're going to want to have said when if things go bad, that can kind of live there too. Yes, sir. Yes, I think, I th so the question is, when you have the lead pastor and an associate pastor basically under the authority of the presbytery, whereas you have an assistant pastor or maybe a ministry director as under the authority of the local church, the session, as opposed to being directly... Yeah, that's a really good question. I think of the PCA churches I've worked with, the employees, even the senior pastor and associate pastor, are employees of the local church entity. So although they are sort of spiritually accountable and responsible to the presbytery, and really that's where they take their direction from, and from a member, you know, they're not members of the local church, they're members of the presbytery. I say that like y'all don't all know that. I'm, I'm the one who, who that was relatively new news to. But um, uh, from an employment standpoint, again, we have the spiritual church and the legal church. From an employment standpoint, they all work, they all get a W-2 from the local church, which is incorporated under state law um, as usually a state legal entity in one state. Um, from a reporting standpoint, you're right. What you end up with, if you really trace out all the reporting lines, is you end up with these people kind of being sort of under the spiritual authority of a different legal entity. So, so how do you how do you, you know, like how do you get to the top? You know, how do you how do you make all these lines go to some place so that the various people who have responsibilities, corporation boards, and mm -hmm. have responsibilities over the employees, and then you have employees who have underneath them employees. You know, how do you work all that mm -hmm. out? Practically, the way I do it in a PCA employee manual is I incorporate the BCO by reference and I include override language in the state level legal documents so that whatever changes occur in the BCO document itself um, basic functionally automatically amends and overrides any contrary provisions in the state law governing documents so mechanically that's how I accomplish it for clients who have that same issue um, otherwise from a legal standpoint, all the people who work at the church work for the church. The elder board, the sort of elder group constituted under the BCO guidelines, they should normally overlap entirely with the state law board of directors. Um, the biggest problems I've seen, I think you're hitting on the point, the biggest problems I've seen is when there was a church I was helping uh, with a land issue, they wanted to sell some land um, 
facts, details aren't that important, but they wanted to sell some land. They, the church entity, the local church entity, had a subsidiary that was the, the deed holder, the title holder to the land. The board, the current set of elders at the church, were the elected set of elders elected by the congregation. They had not actually gone through the procedures of amending their state bylaws. So a, the group of humans who were listed in the state bylaws as the board of directors sort of overlapped with the current elders of the church. And then, you know, there were requirements, there were supermajority requirements to sell the land. So anytime you have big decisions, you got to have these sort of higher vote requirements. They didn't have enough votes to sell the land of the people who were listed as board of directors members of the subsidiary. So basically all the elders wanted to sell the land and the church wanted to, most people did. There was a small holdout and they were able to stop the sale of the land because of that fail and overlap. Yes. Yeah. The fiduciary duties. Are, so. Those are the examples of, you know, what is the role of the, the pastor, mm-hmm. senior pastor, what is the role of the session, what is the role of the corporation board in matters like that in I think I think I understand the question. So the question is about um, the fiduciary duties of the board of directors under the state law entity and how that lines up with the duties and responsibilities of the elders constituted under the BCO. Is that fair? Yeah, and are there any responsibilities? No. The yes. Yes, there are. Yeah, there, there are responsibilities. As When you have the elders, sort of elected elders of the church, they generally would line up as being the same group of people who are the state law board of directors under the state charter. And so those people are then the boards, the board of, in addition to being the elders sort of spiritually, they're also the board of directors under, for the state law organization. And they have all the normal fiduciary duties that attend a, a board member of a state law organization. So, and one thing, the way I address that, I recommend clients address that is through DNO insurance. It's a really good idea to have directors and officers insurance, an, an insurance addendum to your general insurance policy. Um, so as long as you're not acting way out of bounds, like fraudulently or willful misconduct, then any mistakes you make can generally be covered with that DNO policy. So uh, one of the issues that I know comes up a lot when termination of employees comes up and gets, uh, when I say comes up, makes the news even, is what we hear referred to as non-disclosure agreements, uh, NDAs as they're often referred to by shorthand. Um, and uh, generally they're spoken of in negative ways uh, in use uh, in churches, uh, but, I, but they're also a, a legal a tool uh, that's available for use. So could you just speak to NDAs uh, and your experience of working with them in the church context and thoughts you may have about that? Thank you. Um, 
Yeah, NDAs, I think that's a great way to describe it, Andy, is, is that they're a tool and they can be used for good or for bad, like any tool can be used for good or for bad. Um, I think the news coverage is largely appropriate in the situations that come up in the news. Um, you know, NDAs that have been used to really silence people and, and oppress people. Um, it's a tool that's been used in really bad ways. And I mean, we could talk about a bunch of examples, but I'm sure you've all read the same articles I have. Um, I do think that I use non-disclosure agreement and confidentiality provisions kind of interchangeably. Um, those are really interchangeable concepts. Um, whether they exist, whether the title of the document doesn't really matter. But I tend to use confidentiality agreements. I think they're, they can be a, good, a tool used for good in some situations, and it's mainly in situations where you don't have a power imbalance that's being covered over. Um, and the, the helpful times and the things when I recommend to clients to use confidentiality agreements are when you have folks who are dealing with sensitive financial information. Um, you know, your finance team, it's really helpful to have, you know, they have a lot of donor information that's really valuable. And I've seen situations where people try to sell, sell contact information of the rich people that they know in the congregation. Um, and maybe it's helpful to have some, you know, if you just have a member who's on your finance team, and you don't have any other contractual relationship with them, and they just take someone's private financial information or a group of people's financial information and start distributing it all over the place, you can't really do anything about that unless your state has an identity theft protection law, um, which is really hard to exercise. So having some sort of contractual arrangement with the people who are in overseeing the money to, so they know to keep that private and what the parameters are is a good idea. Um, most, most church separations that I've seen are not the situation where there's a drastic power imbalance between you know, the, the news situation where there's a, an abuser and an abused and it's clear who someone's done something really wrong. Most of the time, the really hard situations are, I mean, just to be frank, it's where someone's had an affair, a, an otherwise consensual affair that a private employer, you know, wouldn't care too much about other than like a non-fraternization policy at a private company, but because um, it's a church, and their moral standards, it's a big problem in a church. Um, most of the time in those situations, everybody involved wants a confidentiality agreement um, because there's a lot of shame and a lot of harm that's happened. And usually it's two adults who have been caught in an affair and everyone feels terrible and really regrets what they did most of the time. Um, and a lot of times, you know, the people leaving employment they don't want to talk about it anymore. So they actually want the church to be bound to some level of confidentiality. And the thing that I found that's really helpful, not helpful, um, makes the situation just a little bit better is um, em the employee who's leaving tends to like to be able to have some input in how they're going to be remembered uh, among the congregation where they're leaving. Um, as an employee, sometimes I stay on as members. That normally doesn't work out. It, everyone says that, and then it lasts for a couple months, and then you don't see them anymore. Um, but most of the time, I found that in the separation agreement, we'll have both the church and the employee script out how they're going to be remembered, how they're going to be talked about in the bulletin, and how the other church employees are going to be instructed to discuss that person's departure. And that seems to be give a lot of peace of mind 
to the employee who's leaving and is really ashamed about what happened. Um, and so that kind of confidentiality agreement can be really helpful for everybody involved. And it can really, when it takes the shape in a formal legal document, it gives everyone a, 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 whatever legal rights transfer in the document, but it also gives everyone a sense that this is going to be over and done with and we're all gonna move on, which can be, um, I think it can be comforting in a really hard circumstance. Yes, so I think that was, it's helpful for me to hear you uh, explain this. I'm going to try to say back to you what I heard you say, and hopefully I got it right. Uh, so that if, when a separation happens, it's helpful to have the uh, employee uh, who is being terminated, uh, losing their employment, to be part of actually writing out how will the church publicly describe what has happened. You know, how will the church leader stand in front of the church on Sunday? What will they say, happen, or put in an email? And it gives the employee the peace of mind that I know the church has bound itself to only speak in this way about my departure. And that's caring for them, giving them voice in the process, and, and binding. And it's also helpful, I think, at times to the church leaders to say, I can't say anything more. I know you people have questions, but uh, this is, we've agreed uh, to limit our remarks to this. Um, so just on that, sort of on that same note, because uh, I want to, there's an issue that I learned through you. I learned my mistakes through you. Um, so when you, uh, you have an employee that you need to uh, separate, and, but you want to care for them, and part of the care is financial. So you want to provide them, let's say, with three months of ongoing compensation so that they get some severance, can get new employment, because, you, like you said, they may not qualify for unemployment insurance because of the church being their employer. So you want to do that. You're trying to do something kind. But also, at that point, though, once they're out the door, all of a sudden the church, as the legal entity, is sending checks to this individual in the community. So how, how do you do that right if you want to provide severance as a church? That's a really good question. That's what I, I see this problem the most. Um, it doesn't get caught because of that audit issue I mentioned, where churches generally don't get audited. But So there's this concept called private inurement, I-N-U-R-E, inurement. And there's a concept called private benefit. And these are, you know, when you hear nonprofits get in trouble in the news because a church has a, a pastor with a jet plane or something, usually there's a private inurement, private benefit problem lurking in the background. Um, and these are really old concepts, but the way they, the long and short of it is, um, the big category is private benefit. So that's non-incidental benefits to disinterested persons that serve private interests is a way to think about it. So it's basically, that's the big category. The smaller category, it's really broad. The smaller category is private inurement. Um, that's sort of benefits to insiders. So this is all about the exempt mission of the church. So that you have an exempt organization, you have to use money for the mission of the church. So if, if you're getting, if someone's getting a benefit, if an insider like an employee or a pastor is getting a benefit that is larger than the services that they provide, the benefit received by the church, you have what's called a private benefit or private inurement problem, and you have potential penalties to the IRS. Um, it can be excess compensation, it can be the pastor takes someone out to lunch every day at a nice restaurant, um, and the pastor always eats, you know, at the top of the menu, and then the, you know, the church member eats at the middle of the menu. Um, you have all these, if it gets looked at by an auditor, 
uh, or by the IRS, you can have a really big problem with really substantial penalties. And so the solution that I generally recommend when someone's leaving and you want to have kind of a soft landing and you realize you don't have unemployment insurance and you don't have a formal severance policy is a separation agreement whereby the departing employee waives claims, agrees to confidentiality, the church agrees to whatever confidentiality it's comfortable with, and also offers a severance payment. It gives, the, it gives a, a pathway for that payment to be made, which isn't, it's still a position you're taking, but it's not a clear just payment to a person who doesn't work here anymore. Because if, you, if your church writes checks to someone who's a member, and that person hasn't done any work for the church, they're not an employee, they're not a contractor, it's not a fair market value exchange, if the IRS looked at it, they would find probably a private inurement problem and they would probably levy uh, penalties under these what are called the excess benefit rules. So if you Google excess benefit transaction, you can start to see the mechanics of how that works. And if it's a little penalty, it's 20, you have to reclass it as income and pay 25%. There's also a 200% penalty for really bad actions. Um, it's pretty severe if, if you get into it. Um, and so the, the better way, the best way to do it the way I tend to like to do it, if, if, someone, if a church really wants to address this proactively, is I like to have a policy about notice. So anytime a church is going to end a person's employment, they give them 90 or 120 days notice. It, and then the church has the ability to hit, to accelerate the notice provision if they make the payment. So long and short of it is, three or four months of salary and benefits, you know, we're going to tell the person that it's, you're leaving, your, your employment's over in three to four months, and then we're, we have the right to accelerate that provision to have you leave campus, but you can still stay on the payroll and benefits for three or four months. If you have a kind of a uniform policy about notice, um, that can work pretty well, and it can, it can accomplish the goal uh, without having to have a negotiated settlement agreement in every circumstance. But if you don't have a policy, severance benefits policy, private unemployment insurance if you don't pay into the state unemployment system or the federal unemployment system, um, then a, a, another way to approach it is having um, a, a separation agreement, which gives you a vehicle. And your accountant, once you talk, if you talk about this to your accountant, your accountant, will, their eyes will probably light up and be grateful um, that it gives you an avenue to make that payment, because otherwise it's hard to figure out where to put it. All right. Uh, yeah, question here? So the, the question is, is an NDA null and void if the NDA is being used to cover up a criminal act? That's a good question, sometimes. Um, the, problem, the problem there is in the proof because you have to, basically you have to break it in order to test whether it's being used to cover up a criminal act or not. Um, if it's really clear that it's being used to cover up a criminal act, um, a lot of times there's a way to get out of it so, for instance, uh, the Speak Out Act, federal legislation that passed, I don't know, six or eight months ago, um, in the wake of the kind of the Me Too movement, um, basically you can't have certain non-disclosure agreements that relate to sexual assault um, uh, or, or uh, rape or other sexual... There's certain categories of behavior where you can't have pre-dispute non-disclosure agreements. Um, covering up a criminal act... It's hard to answer that as a category because sometimes there's ways around those NDAs and sometimes there's, there's not. And really the problem is, is proof. How do you, 
how do you get someone to decide that this is this situation is covering up a criminal act without because you can't do that until you've disclosed it um, sometimes there's there are mandatory report that's a really good that's maybe I'll use this as a jumping off point mandatory reporting laws one of the things that's really helpful is if the situation involves a juvenile in nearly every state there's some version of what's called a mandatory reporting law so if there's a criminal act or neglect or abuse involving a minor these mandatory reporting laws can override an NDA. So that's one of the big avenues of overriding an otherwise applicable non-disclosure agreement is, due, is because of a mandatory reporting law. But usually those only relate to minors. A lot of times those don't relate to people over age 18. All right. Uh, well, our time has come to an end. Um, I know you probably have uh, more questions. Uh, and uh, I just want to thank uh, Andy for uh, taking your time to be with us and to uh, field these questions. Uh, yeah, and uh, I think there could be uh, a, lot of, a lot of seminars, <laughs> world without end, that we could talk about legal issues within the church. But thank you all for your time and, and attention and participation as well. Blessings to you all. more talks like this by subscribing to the Gifts and Graces podcast. You can also hear more content like this by attending a seminar at General Assembly. They are free and open to the public. Find out times and locations by visiting pcaga.org. Thanks for listening to Gifts and Graces.